Hello, hello, hello. All right, everybody. Welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. I am Robert Winfrey, your host, and this is your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. All right, before we get too far going, let me start off with a mild disclaimer. If I sound a little weird, if I'm a little bit off, a little low energy, I am recording this after covering AEW's Revolution pay-per-view event that took place against Sunday evening. My day was a bit too busy prior to that event to really feel comfortable recording before then. And, well, it's been a day. It's been a long-ish day, and if I'm a little bit off, just that's why. Please bear with me. promise to give you every... I always give you the best that I can. Just... If you're wondering, again, if I sound a little bit meh, long day, and I just got done covering a <laughs> non-trivial length professional wrestling event, so, um, which you guys know I do. I do cover professional wrestling, and I don't usually cover AEW's major events, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good boy. I'm a company player, and if they say, hey, by the way, we need some help, I'm, I'll go along. I'll go along for the ride. I will happily piss off the professional wrestling fans of any major promotion or minor by having a different opinion than most of their fans, so. Because I do, usually. Eh. I don't care if you agree with me, I only care if you think I'm being honest. And, you know, that's my big deal. I don't need to agree with you. I don't need you to agree with me. Um, this is about everything. As long as I know you're operating in good faith and you know I'm operating in good faith, I don't, we can have reasonable stylistic disagreements. Anywho, on the agenda this evening, we had a lot to talk about. We have UFC 285. Good grief, one of those cards, man. One of those nights. I mean that in a good way. Um, mostly. Mostly a good way. Not exclusively a good way, but mostly. Uh, we will review all of that. You know what? Very briefly about 285. There was only one underdog all night that won. Only one. It was a pretty big one, but again, we'll get to the specifics. Also, on the horizon, UFC on ESPN plus 79. This will not take place at the Apex because of the power slap finale. I... I never wanted to talk about Power Slap again. I was content to leave that alone, to let it die on, live or die on its own merits, and just, I assume die. And the numbers started backing me up, but I was going to leave it alone. But now I kind of have to talk about it a little, a little bit. And again, I don't want to, but when we get to news, the news section, I suppose I'll have to. Um, UFC on ESPN Plus 79 is, uh, again, not at the Apex. The Power Slap finale is taking place at the Apex. The UFC event is at, oh, the Virgin Hotel Doohickey in Vegas. I'll, I'll read the venue when I get there, so I I will give you this, the real venue, I promise. I just can't remember off the top of my head. And then news of the week, so we got stuff, man, and 285 is going to take a bit of time to talk about, so before we get into it, uh, thank you as always. And please, if you would, like, comment, subscribe, if that's at all applicable to your podcast platform of choice. Star rating, written review, if that's applicable. Whatever you can do to interact with the product helps. 
And if you've done any at all of that, sharing it around. You've got some kind of social network that you're plugged into. Be that a digital one or a real-life one. Or, you know what? If you're a weirdo, and I mean this with respect, as something of a loner weirdo myself, if you're a weirdo without a much of a social network around you who doesn't really connect with people on the Internet either, and I am one of the things you listen to to help pass the time and stave off the insanity that that kind of isolation brings on, you know what? Respect. Respect. Uh, I'm happy to help any way I can. You, sir, are exempt from my call to tell other people about the show and try to help it grow. The rest of you, no excuse. Tell people. Uh, tell a friend, tell a stranger, tell an enemy. I don't really care. And if you're new to the show, thank you. Happy to have you. I hope whoever pointed you in our direction did so not trying to, not as your enemy. All right. That's the boilerplate per usual, so let's jump into this, shall we? UFC 285. The big one. A lot of fights. What? How many fights were on this card? 15 or 14? 5, 9, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, 14. Did we lose one? Uh... No, I don't think we did. We had a couple of fighters miss weight. We'll get to the specifics. Uh, yeah, no, there was, there was no fights falling off. Just, oh yeah, I know why this. Sorry, this event. So, everywhere I looked, let me start with this before I get into the top fight. Everywhere I looked indicated for the vast majority of the week leading up to this event, start time of 6 p.m. Eastern. That's 4 p.m. where I live. That's what I saw. That's what I saw everywhere. Well, lo and behold, I and it's Saturday, so I go do a few things. I got some stuff to do. Nothing major, but stuff. I get back. It's 3.15, coming up on 3.20, give or take. And lo and behold, our first fight is done with its first round, which I did not cover live because I... Now, apparently this changed. I don't know when it changed. But they started half an hour or so early from what they had been advertising everywhere prior to the week of, like, even during the week. Well, it turns out, I didn't know why. I saw it listed and went, all right, they're starting early. I don't know. That's weird. Mea culpa. I probably could have, look, and I should have double-checked the day of. That's on me. I will own that. Didn't know why. Well, found out why after the early prelims got done, when there was a 20 to 30 minute break between that and the next fight. Now, you might be wondering, why in the world was there a 20 minute break between preliminary portions of the card? That's a fair question to ask, mind you. And the answer is Jake Gyllenhaal. See, Jake Gyllenhaal is the lead in a remake. They're calling it a remake. A double check that. Yeah, it's a remake of Roadhouse. This, gonna, this movie's gonna suck, mind you. It's gonna fail miserably. But Jake Gyllenhaal is your lead. Conor McGregor's in it, and. 
it seems like they're changing the backstory of the main character to now be a disgraced former UFC fighter who killed a man in the cage and was run out of the sport. And now he's lost and mopey and looking for himself, bouncing in bars and fighting off henchmen. You see how stupid this is? That's, that's my guess. But to facilitate this, I mean, they had like both Jake Hall, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and his opponent for the fight were his um, former UFC fighter, Jay Heron. Good for Jay. Non-trivial chance, Jay Heron was paid more money to be in that cage acting out a fight for, you know, like two or three takes than most of the preliminary fighters were paid <laughs> to just be like a non-speaking extra role to get beat up by Jake Gyllenhaal in a movie. Probably paid more than a bunch of these poor, these poor people got paid to be there for real getting beat up. Uh, and Dana White, meanwhile, this week, pushing back, like, no, no, I, these guys, they make so much money, they make so much money that every single one of them begs you for an extra $50,000 in your post-fight bonus. Your post-fight bonuses haven't even kept up with inflation, you cheap bastard. Sorry, shouldn't swear. Uh, anyway, so they, they did that, they had like 20 minutes where Jake Gyllenhaal Roided to the gills, mind you. Him and Connor both are on that good stuff. Bear in mind, I don't care if you're an actor and you're on steroids. I assume they all are. Heck, I assume most fighters are, and there's nothing against... Like, there's no prohibition on it for actors unless you're dealing with illegal stuff. Anyway. Um, so, they taped that. And footage of it leaked, because everyone there filmed it with their cell phone camera. Yeah, he walked out. They did the introductions. You can see the... Again, you can find this on online. It's on Twitter. Uh, if you want to see it. And the commentary team gets an acting gig part of it. Um, sure. I mean, there's going to be used. Their voiceover is going to be used. So you can kind of see them calling the action for this fake fight. I shouldn't say it like that. They're, call, they're line reading for the movie. Like, I, I need to be more respectful of that. So It's not a fake... Of course it's a fake fight. It's a movie. Sorry, professional wrestling seeping into my brain. <laughs> um, so they filmed that, and it was like this 20-minute downtime. Uh, so yeah, that was a thing. <sighs> Oog. Very annoying thing. Uh, but that's what they did. Anyway, moving on from that. Main event, let's get to the actual fights. Ah, very, I was very wrong about this one, and you know what? I'm not going to... I know why I picked the way I did. I think my logic was sound, but the closer we got to this fight, the more in my head I went, you were wrong. And by the time we got to the cage, I knew it. Like, the first time these two squared up, John Jones and Cyril gone. I knew I was wrong. And yeah, I was wrong. John Jones wins almost effortlessly. Um, they come out. They John throws a couple of leg kicks. Gone, um, gone southpaw. Gone can fight out of either stance, but he prefers open. So in this case, he went southpaw. And John throws a couple of outside leg kicks. Lands a bit of a right hand. Gone throws an inside leg kicks and kicks John Jones squarely in the crotch. 
You know, as many times as John has fouled his opponents, he would probably do a return. <laughs> so, he shrugs it off. It, it was an accident. You know, this thing's happened. We'll talk more about that in some of the earlier fights. When, boy, howdy, did we have fouls aplenty on this card. John shakes it off, gets back to fighting. Gon throws a left hand. John ducks, slips to the outside, and moves enough that he comes up on Gon's back, standing. Now, this is less of a thing. It's less of a thing, but eh. It's a little bit less of a thing with close stance fighters. Um, it's Again, it's not not a thing with close stance, but... It's a lot more dangerous with open stance because doing it closed your foot position relative to the cross. Again, if we're both orthodox and I throw a right and you slip to my right, so to your left, get under my right hand and try to get around to my back or you know, shoot a double leg or whatnot. Partially, that's how you want to do it. But also, it's a little bit easier for me to adjust. Right? I can move my right leg and square up back to you in a hurry. Uh, if you if we're open stance, so I'll stay orthodox, you go southpaw. If I throw that and you slip to my right, if I try to re-square up, I'm just, like, it's not as square to you, uh, or sorry, I'm more square to you. And if your feet are fast, and John moved pretty quickly, you get around and you can get, again, towards the back. <laughs> now... We saw this a little bit in the earlier fight we're going to get to uh, with Shavkat Rachmanov and Jeff Neal. Neal wound up in the same position several times, too, kind of overthrowing a cross to an open stance opponent. Neal, in contrast to Gon, makes it a big priority to get that hand back, to get it inside his opponent, so if they do clinch, he can pummel and get an immediate underhook and get chest to chest instead of you on his back. Gon does not do this. Gon's hand does not come back inside of John. John gets around, drives him down, kind of gets on the legs, lands a few punches. A little, uh, slightly, like, you know, slightly Khabib style from the ride position. Gon scoots to the fence, wall walks. John, on his back, doesn't overcommit to the position, comes back around. Like, one of the things you do here, if you've got the back... If you can't get someone down from there because they're good at that position or whatnot, what you do, this is one way to do it. You re-attack, right? Especially if I've got a body lock or even if my hands aren't locked together, if I've got, again, functionally double underhooks from the back. I can spin around you, right? Especially if you're kind of pushing my hands down. Because normally this is one of the things you do. If someone's got their hands around you, you get your hips forward away from them, and you push their hands down and away, try to break the grip. Well, if someone knows you're doing that, what they do is they circle. So in this case, it was John circling to his left, and if they circle, when they come around and they're, sh they're now facing you, their shoulders in your gut and their hands are in perfect position to go for a double leg. Uh, I think James Cross used to call it recycling the position, if you saw his, um, his thing on fence wrestling. Really good stuff, by the way. John does that. Circles... Sucks the legs out, gets gone into a seated position against the fence, mounts the legs, grabs the head. Like he's fishing for a guillotine, but the first one, it's not really there. It's more for control. It's more a headlock than a guillotine. And he realizes this, gone realizes this. 
So John kind of bails on it. Decides he doesn't need it for control. Let's go. Gone. I forget exactly what he does. He does something. But as he's trying to move, John reattacks. Left hand gets around. This time gets under the chin. Brings his hands together. And Gone taps pretty quickly. You can understand why. When, like on Watching it live, most people didn't see it. I did. I, I This is very rare for me. Unless you think I'm patting myself on the back. It's very rare that I catch all the nuance that I like to in real time. Very rare. I did here. John gets that grip in, and then he... There's a real mean way to finish a guillotine. It's You can't do it very often. You kind of have to be in this position. But boy, if you can get it, it's real nasty. So John's got the proper grip, which is the first big thing. Like you, get, you get the grip, that's a real problem. And John's got a good guillotine anyway. He has for a while. And because they're sitting, and because Gon's back is to the fence, John doesn't have to squeeze. I mean, I'm sure he was, but what John does to clamp this thing, he leans. He just drops his weight onto the back of Cyril Gon's neck. And it... John's a, John was a big guy here. He was just under 250. He was like 248 and a half, and Gon was 247 or 248. Like they were very, they were almost identical in weight. But John sinks his weight onto the back of the neck. And again, you can't do this very often when you go for a guillotine, because if you're on your back, again, you can kind of try to compress, but you're more shortening space with your arms and your hip position and that way. Or if you've got the arm in, you're kind of crunching. It was a little bit more like that, but if you're doing this from the seated position, again, John's kind of got his legs mounted. If you happen to get someone in this, this will work. You get that arm around the neck, you don't have to squeeze. You don't even have to pull, really. Reinforce it and then just sink your weight down. Your neck muscles aren't that strong. Uh, certainly not with a 250-pound man leaning on them. That extra weight just collapsed any possible frame Gon could have built, and he had to tap immediately. Again, it's kind of a niche position, because the other way you might get something similar, I mean, even the standing guillotine isn't like this. Because, again, you're kind of hip, you're hipping into that. Here, it's literally just body weight. Again, you don't... So, if you happen to have a training partner that you guys want to play around, don't be stupid. But try it with one of you sitting. Mount the legs. If you have a fence or a wall to use, go ahead. And then grab the guillotine and don't... Again, you don't have to squeeze real hard with your arms. Just sag your upper body weight on top of their neck. It's mean. And I mean that, like, and not in a dirty way. You know, there's some there's some stuff you do in occasional that, you know, might skirt the line of what are in the rules. And sometimes you call that dirty, even though it's legal. It's like, eh, that's a little dirty. Um, I mean, there's there's thing like I mean, grappling specifically, like if you can't get a choke under the chin, if you like can get the blade of your forearm right across the bridge of someone's nose and just yank back like you're doing a choke, they'll tap because you'll mess up their nose or. Similarly, um, if you get it like a, um, below the nose but above the lips, like, and you push back real hard, like kind of where your teeth connect, 
if they're not wearing a mouthpiece, um, yeah, you'll break teeth. And if you're just rolling with someone, you know, casually, or, you know, again, not, if you're not really in competition, don't do that. I, I mean that. It's a real, real crappy thing to do. If you're in a competition, then all bets are off because there's no rules against it, right? So, again, don't be a jerk in the training room. When you're actually in a competition, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a little bit of a jerk within the rules. Uh, so it's a little bit like that, where you know, that that choke variation, again, it's just, it's kind of mean in a good way. And John got that. He's the heavyweight champion of the world, of the UFC. Um, I don't know that he's the best heavyweight in the world. Uh, can I be honest um, about this real fast? Uh, there's, a, there's a real finite amount of information we can draw from this. The fight lasted two minutes and four seconds. This is the second shortest fight of John Jones' entire UFC career, which I've seen all of. Most of, I've seen every, I have seen the entirety of John Jones' UFC career. I was, I watched his debut against Andre Guzmão. Um, I was watching at the time, and I've covered the majority of it. I haven't covered all of it. I have covered the majority of it. Have I actually? I don't know what the first. I actually am not sure what the first John Jones fight was that I covered. I mean, I was watching them for the co- the weekly column back when I wrote that. And I mean, I was watching as a fan first, and then started watching all everything for that, pretty much. I don't know what the first one I covered would have been. It wasn't... Sh- I don't think it was Shogun. Um, it might have been... I might have done one of... Did I do one of his fight nights before the title fight? I don't know. doesn't matter. Um, and yeah, he... Two minutes... The only one he... The Point being, the only one he won faster was when he beat Vladimir Matyushenko. And that was a... I, respl- I respect Vladimir Matyushenko, but John bulldozed him. Similar thing here. I don't think Gon landed a very like. I think the only strike Gon really landed was the illegal one. <laughs> John kind of just ran him over. I don't know if this version of John would have beaten Francis Ngannou. Um, I'm going to say though, it wouldn't shock me. Like, one of the reasons I picked Cyril Gon was I wasn't sure what John would look like with the three-year layoff. You know, and he's been doing this for a long time. I mean, for crying out loud, John's, what, 35? Yeah, he's 35. He debuted professionally in 2008. So he's been doing this almost 25 years. Yeah, it was April of 08. Sorry, 25. My math, uh, not 25. Told you, my math's gonna be off. Um, what would that be? 10, yeah, 15, sorry. 15 years is still a long time. His only loss is kind of a BSDQ. 
Um, now he's the heavyweight champion for the UFC. Uh, again, the time off, some of the injuries, there were just a lot of question marks here for John. I, I mean, I did say it last week. I think the best version of John would beat Gone. I didn't know what version we were going to get. Turns out a pretty good one. Um, he looked good enough as a heavyweight. I mean, he's not... I talked about this with one of the commenters a little bit. Um, John's just not a naturally muscular guy. There's a genetic component to this, to how you put on muscle. Some guys are naturally more muscular than others. Guys like Cyril Gahn or Francis Ngannou or... Uh, who's another... Look, make all the jokes you want about uh, pharmaceutical help. Alistair Overeem is a very naturally muscular guy. Now, even when he was a light heavyweight, you know, look at uh, you could look at his physique and like he and you could always tell like he could bulk up. Some guys are naturally muscular, some are not. John is not terribly; he doesn't get a lot of very defined muscle. So as he bulked up, it wasn't. And I don't mean this unkindly. Some guys have very camera-friendly physiques as they put on muscle. Some do not. John was focused on how his muscles performed, not how they looked. Some guys can do both. Again, if you're blessed genetically, and that's really all it is, then you can do both. And I hate you all who can do that, by the way. <laughs> I do. John, again, function over fashion when it comes to his musculature, because that's what matters. So, it, is it the, again, it's not like drop your jaw physique, but it didn't look, he didn't look, um, he didn't look overly heavy. He did, he seemed to wear it well. I, I imagine the next time he'll be a little lighter, he might shed a couple of more pounds, be a bit closer to 240 than 250. Again, would be kind of my hunch. But, again, he wears it well, big guy, moved well, like, he moved well. You know, some of John's last couple of fights at light heavyweight, he hadn't been moving all that well. You know, just, I don't know if it was wear and tear, I don't know if it was a lack of interest, but he moved well. He had dialed everything in beforehand, he had audited Cyril Gon's game. John, John might have the best fight IQ of anyone I've ever seen. Uh, you can argue, a like, if you want to argue that he lost to Dominic Reyes, fine. I'm not going to, I've made my position clear on that. I'm not going to relitigate it. Except to say, you know, John's decision-making in that might, maybe it didn't, uh, maybe you still think Reyes won the first three. But who was making better decisions the more that fight went? Like, that fight started... Everything in that fight kept go, started tilting more and more and more towards Jones. Again, even the people who think Reyes won, and I'm very sympathetic to that argument. Uh, you give Reyes, what you do is you give Reyes the first three. And even the people who give it to Reyes, that third round is close. That third round's very close. And nobody gives Reyes four and five. So. The point there, like, John just makes good decisions. He's a, he is a big-time student of fighting. 
and not every great fighter is, not every great fighter needs to be. This is this is kind of an individual thing. Some fighters like watching tape, some fighters like breaking things down, some don't. Again, that that's individualized. John watches a lot of tape, and John has an exceptional mind for the fight game. I mean, there were stories coming out of Jackson Wink for years that John could break down tape on the same level that Greg Jackson could. And I know that Jim's fallen on hard times and some of it's deserved and yada yada, but uh, and Greg Jackson's a little, he might be a little goofy, and I don't say that unkindly. But Greg Jackson has a very, very good mind for this game and a very good eye. And if John was his equal, if not his better at breaking down tape, that says a lot about John. It, John had a bit at the press at the press conference, the pre-fight one, where he someone asked him about the fight, and he said, no, it's going to go like this. And he had no problem in detail breaking down Cyril Gon's game. And then it played out basically like he called. Uh... Before I get into what's next for John, let me talk for a minute about Gon. I like Cyril Gon. He's got a very nice attitude. Seems like a very happy fellow. He's a big guy. I love the way he moves. I I think he's got decent decision-making when he knows what he's doing. Um, he's offensively potent, but there are parts of his game that really need to be better than where they are. And I'm not sure where entirely the fault lies with this. Gon came out after during the fight week and kind of and said, you know, I only train when fights are announced. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm going to just say that if it is, then he will never be better than he is now. You he you need to be training more regularly than that. The other potential problem might be his team. I'm I I really hate saying this because I don't know the details of this, but let me just what I do know. Um, Fernand Lopez brought him quite a ways. Uh, got him to a, an interim title. He's now had two title shots at the undisputed title. He's still a very highly regarded heavyweight. He still beats, I think, a lot of that division, if not most of it. But his wrestling, in his wrestling in particular, and elements of his overall grappling—they're not where they need to be. And that's become very apparent in the fight with Nganu and in this fight. There's just some foundational problems here. Again, he when he misses that punch, he doesn't try to immediately pummel for an underhook. That has to be instinctual. Again, watch... I think there's a clip on Twitter of... John doing that to Gon, and then Jeff Neal and Shavkat, and you can see the difference immediately. Neal knows if this hand misses, 
He's got the superior angle. This comes back and it pummels instantly. I can't give up the superior position. And Gon does not, did not do that. It, it needs to be instinctual. This is one of those things that has to kind of be drilled into you. It's got to be muscle memory. You can't think about it. That position will develop too fast, even at heavyweight. He's not hand fighting well. Uh, his wall walk looked, the first one looked okay. That said, like, there were some other kind of mitigating circumstances there. The, and just when that guillotine kind of starts coming into play, he doesn't recognize it. He's not hand fighting. He's not, he's not recognizing the positional advantages that he has. Sitting against the fence means you can't be pushed over. If, if the other guy is going to get you flat, they have to change the angle. So there's some stuff you don't need to worry about. And he wasn't quite recognizing that. Again, he wasn't hand fighting. There's there's just stuff. Some of it, again, kind of, and I don't, again, I, I hate saying this. Some of it is fairly basic stuff that he needs to either be taught or do a lot more of. Uh, and I don't, again, I don't know how much of this is him. I don't know how much of this is his team because his team is not exactly known for turning out uh, high-quality grapplers. Um, was Nasruddin Imovov fight for that same out of that same camp? And I think he had. He's a little better of a wrestler, but he had some similar issues recently. Uh, so I don't know if Gon needs to supplement his training with you know time spent at. American Top Team or American Kickboxing Academy or you know someplace or did Khabib offer? I, I heard so I think I heard that like he was offered to like you know, go spend some time in Dagestan so uh, you know with Khabib's training. So I don't I don't know you know what I don't know the specific solution. I know this is becoming a problem for him and he needs to fix it. If he ever wants to be go higher than he is right now, and right now top five heavyweight, even with this loss, he's probably a top. I think he's still a top five heavyweight. You ever want to be better, you need to shore up these issues. And whether that's bringing in other coaches, whether that's just training more regularly with your current coach, whether that's a full change of camp, I don't know. I really don't. And but something has to change. Or this will happen again. And again. Maybe even again. Like, guys are going to try and take him down now. That everyone, Like, people had tried before, but he also got some matches that were like guys who were just going to strike with him. You know, Derek Lewis isn't going to try and take you down. Lorenz <laughs> Taituivasa isn't. Uh, and you know, Curtis Blades would probably beat him right now. Uh, Tom Aspinall might give him some problems. You need to sort this out. Uh, so I, again, I hope he does. He seems to be taking this one pretty hard. He didn't take the loss to Nganu all that hard. Um, partially because there was kind of an argument that he won. 
I actually scored it for him live. I thought he won the fifth round because I didn't think Francis did enough with top position to out to mitigate the actual effect and damage that Ghan had done, but I was in the minority. Uh, there's no again. There's no argument here. He, if he's able to take the loss and use his motivation, uh, I I hope he can. I still like him. I still think he's a very good fighter. There's just stuff to iron out. Uh, as for what's next for John, it seems to be a date with Stipe Miocic for July International Fight Week. Yeah. Okay. I'm down. Uh, I said last week that I think Stipe is a very favorable matchup for John stylistically. I think that's still probably true. Um, Stipe obviously is a better wrestler than Cyril Gaon. So, it won't quite look the same. But, Stipe... Stipe doesn't adjust all that well. Which is not to say not at all, but... And he adjusts... He adjusts better than some fighters. A lot of them don't adjust at all. He's better than that. But John makes rapid adjustments. Um, Stipe's also... He's beaten some bigger guys, but John's... The length of John, I think, is going to give him problems. I would favor... At this point, I'm going to favor John. Like I picked against John for the first time ever in this fight. Now watch me pick him against Stipe, and Stipe do something kind of fun, but... Um, uh, other thing that needs to be said about this, last thing that we're moving on. Um, in my mind, this settles it. John Jones is the greatest fighter in mixed martial arts history. I've seen the takes that know it's still George St. Pierre. George St. Pierre also came off of a long layoff and went up in weight and he beat a defending champion and Michael Bisping's a better, a more well-rounded fighter than Cyril Gaon. And uh, I love George. I do. I wish more fighters were like George in the cage. I wish all fighters were like George out of the cage. He is a, by every account, George is the type of person that you wish fighters were. And John's indiscretions at this point are well within the public record. I don't care about who you are as a person if I'm talking about who's the greatest. It's what you do in the cage. That's it. And yeah, George came off a long layoff and went up in weight, and he beat a defending champion rather than fighting for a vacant belt. True. And is Michael Bisbing a more well-rounded fighter than Cyril Gaon? Yes. I would argue Gaon's more dangerous than Michael Bisbing. But that doesn't mean more well-rounded. You know what else George has done that John hasn't done? Lose. George has lost. And he was finished. Twice. And I love the guy. I love that he came back. I love that he persevered. I'm not saying anything bad about George St. Pierre. If we're comparing, if we're arguing, who's at the top of the mountain? Right? The top. The one. There's only one. The singular greatest. You can argue, again, you can do the, oh, but you know, we can do the Mount Rushmore thing, and there's, you know, he, these are the five. Okay. Who's the one? Who is the one? 
You can talk about greats. There's a lot of greats. I could rattle off several of them. There's only one greatest. And at this point, it is John Jones. This is a man who has never legitimately lost. Let me rephrase that. This is a man who has never been beaten. He has never been beaten. The one loss, that DQ to Matt Hamill, that Dana White's been apparently trying for years to get the NSAC to change. <laughs> um, I'll talk about that. I have some thoughts on the NSAC in a minute or two. Let me let me save it for when we talk about something else. But um, Should I talk about it now? Yeah, you know what? Let me talk about it now for just a second. So, you might think that Dana White, because he is friendly with the Nevada State Athletic Commission, and he is, could get them to overturn this particular ruling, because it's kind of a silly ruling, and you could argue that the elbows John were throwing were arced enough to not be 12-6, to 6. I, think, I think you could argue it. You would think that someone like Dana White could impress and, you know, push in the right places to get the NSAC to change this ruling. I mean, he got them to sanction power... He got them to sanction brain trauma. That's all power slap is. I've said that before. There is no nuance. There is no skill. It's... It's... It's just putting a Homer Simpson in front of a Homer Simpson and seeing who falls over first, right? That's all it is. All it is. And he got the Nevada State Athletic Commission to sign off on this. So why can't he get them to change this old ruling? You'd think it'd be simple, right? Well, here's the reality. And you'd think, this is something I'm a little bit surprised Dana doesn't know, but apparently he doesn't. So for Dana on the off chance he's listening, and for everyone else who might run into something similar to this, the Nevada State Athletic Commission is a state-run operation. This means, fundamentally, that they're all appointed, right? These are not elected positions. You're appointed. The only way, like, there's a minor procedural way to oust someone from the commission, or they resign, or the governor fires them, and that's it. I looked this up. Uh, I forget when it was, but I looked this up. Like, how do you remove someone from the Nevada State Athletic Commission? Well, if they miss three meetings in a row, or they voluntarily step down, or the governor of the state fires them. That's it. These are appointees. This is the kind of position that a political candidate will say, look, you give me your support, maybe I throw you a job, and you can just show up, collect a paycheck. You know, you can be the sanitation commissioner, you can be the athletic commissioner. It's, it's kind of like, this is the kind of thing, right? So they're appointed bureaucrats. This is what they are. And here's the thing about government bureaucracies. And I don't care, let me be clear about this. I don't care if this is the city level, county, state, or federal. Heck, even international Yes, even in, I'm going to go out on that limb. I'm not an expert in international law, but I'm going to I'm I'm okay going out on this limb. Even international law. You can convince a bureaucracy to do something stupid. It's not actually that hard. Again, Dana got power slap regulated. I 
as an example. There's a million of them. Pick your bureaucracy. I guarantee you, if you look at their history, you can find stupid thing, stupid thing, stupid thing, stupid thing, stupid thing. I guarantee it. Sometimes it takes a little effort. Sometimes it doesn't. But you can do it. Here's what you can't do. Can't in quotation marks. A bureaucracy, any of them, any, especially government bureaucracy, on any level, each of those people will individually drink a gallon of bleach before they admit they did anything wrong or that anyone behind them did anything wrong in any meaningful capacity. I don't know why this is. I really don't. I can guess, but I don't know. But as a behavioral pattern, any athletic commission, any agriculture division, any sanitation division, I don't care what it is. Pick your bureaucracy, the Department of Natural Resources. I don't care. Pick them. You will find, one, they can and have been tricked or coerced into doing something very, very stupid. And two, it took them a third of the heat death of the universe to admit they were wrong and probably even longer to do something about it. I guarantee it. So Dana and people of his relative power and wealth, you can get the Nevada State Athletic Commission to do something stupid. I, you probably, you do it all the time. You have done it. You will do it again. You get them to sanction, not even sanctioning like an organization like Power Slap or an event like Power Slap. Like, you get them to sanction fights that should not be sanctioned with a degree of regularity. I mean, when was the last time, think about this for just a second, in MMA in particular, when was the last time any regulatory body, I'm picking on Nevada a little bit, but spread it out if you like, when was the last time any promoter submitted to them a fight and the promoter said, no, we will not sanction this for whatever reason. I mean, BKFC threw Diego Sanchez and Mike Trout together not that long ago. Like, that shouldn't be sanctioned. Diego Sanchez, like, that should not have been allowed to happen. The purpose of the governing bodies is to prevent things like that from happening. When was the last time they actually did it? So, Again, you can do stuff like that all the time. Do you ever try and get them to go back in time and retroactively do something? To fix something they've done in the past? To get, They have to admit to wrongdoing or to their predecessor's wrongdoing. And they won't do it. They will not do it. I don't know exactly why, but I know that they don't. And that's Dana's been running into that headfirst for a long time. Because, again, bureaucracies hate to admit wrongdoing. They hate to admit to error. And, again, any level. Don't care what it is. You, if you're in a city, I, I would bet money you could, if you're involved enough in city politics, you know this is true. Again, county and state, easily. Federal, gah. There are. Do you want the list? The list is enormous for the federal side of that particular equation, at least here in the United States. And 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say wherever you are, assuming you have a functioning government of any degree of history, with, with any kind of history behind it, true of you too. So, that's that. Um, anyway, that was your main event. Uh, so, to close the thing here about John being the... So, John's never lost. Um, John beat Cyril Gaon a lot easier than George St. Pierre beat Michael Bisping. And John's planning to defend his title. Now, I understand why George did, and I don't blame him. But if I got to split hairs here about who gets to be the one at the top of the mountain, the singular, the superlative, then I have to split hairs. And did they both have a couple of close fights along the way? Yeah, they did. I'd argue John had a greater track record of devastation. I'd argue John's John's resume is better in terms of name value. Some of that is because he got to just run through a group of legends that George was never in a position to do. But again, if we're if we're going to split the necessary hairs to determine the singular greatest after this performance, it's John. And, again, that's just kind of how I see things. Uh, I'm not here to pick a fight about this, but the totality of John's resume at this point, he's the one. He's the one. <laughs> you can hate the guy. I don't blame you. I'm not here to advocate for him as a human being. But, as as the one... You know, there's only one greatest. He, it, It's him. It, it's just him. He's long been the best individual fighter I've ever watched. And I've seen great... I've seen George. I covered George. I've seen Demetrius Johnson. I covered most... I think I covered all of his UFC fights. I think I did. I watched Jose Aldo's rise in the WEC. I covered... If not all of his UFC fights, the majority of them. I have to double check, but a lot of them. I, dude, Fedor maybe my fit is one of my favorite fighters ever. It's John, guys. It just is. And you know, look, do I wish he had the personality of George St. Pierre and were a fine, upstanding citizen? Yeah, I do. I wish everyone was. Like that's not that's not me taking a dump on John. I wish everyone were, you know, good human beings. That would be nice. I'd really like that. But if all I care about is what you do in the cage, and that's all I care about when determining the greatest fighter, it's John Jones. Uh, and if he beats, dude, especially if he beats Steep Miocic, that's it. Like right now, I think, I think most sane people go with John. There are arguments. I'm not saying there aren't. Again, you could argue George. You could argue Demetrius Johnson. You could argue Jose Aldo. Like, there's... Again, there's a few arguments to be made here and there. If... If John beats Stipe, that is the end. Everyone has to get on board with that being the end of the discussion, yes? There's no more... There's no more fiddly. There's no more, well, Bisbing's more well-rounded. Yeah, and 
th there's none of that. Like, there's none of that if John beats Stipe Miocic. That, that's the like the final stamp that no one can argue with. So, that was your main event. John was the favorite. John won. Uh, yeah, I don't have going around about that one for a while. Let's get to our lone upset of the evening, and boy, what an upset. Alexa Grasso defeats Valentina Shevchenko via submission. It's listed erroneously on Wiki as a face crank. It's a rear naked choke. The difference between a face crank and a rear naked choke, very briefly. A face crank applies lateral or rotational torque. It's more of a face crank is like it's more of a neck crank than a face crank. We call it a face crank because it's across the face. But it's cranking side to side rather than really applying kind of the backwards pressure to constrict uh, the uh, the carotid arteries. This was a rear naked choke. It was across the jaw, but that doesn't mean it's a face crank. All the compression force is back. And that the the relevant point here is again the face crank or the neck is a crank on the neck it's turning it more than it's pulling right it's turning it more than it's constricting blood flow if you get across the jaw and you just pull straight back hard you're compressing the carotid arteries like that's actually still a strangle so it's, it's erroneously listed but 434 of the fourth grasso gets the win Hand Shevchenko her first loss at flyweight ever? Yeah, ever. Um, her loss to Liz Carmouche, the cut one was a bantamweight, and then both of the Nunes fights. Ends one of the longest and most dominant reigns that the UFC women's side of things have seen. And does so emphatically. Now, the fight itself was a little bit in general, I think things were going Shevchenko's way. Grasso wins the first round. Uh, we get a little bit of back and forth, but Grasso lands the better punches. Second round, Shevchenko's able to get some takedowns, work top control. Third round, there's an awkward stand-up, actually, from the referee. Shevchenko gets another takedown. Is working from full guard, but I guess isn't to the... Satisfaction of referee Jason Herzog, who stands them up. It doesn't actually wind up mattering. Um, then fourth round, I say that to say, I disagreed with that stand-up. wasn't a great one. I don't think it really played a factor in the outcome. Like, Shevchenko wasn't going to get a finish from there. She won the round anyway, and then I don't know what that might have changed in the fourth and how the fourth went. So just to anyone dying on, willing to die on that particular hill, it's a bad hill to die on. Um, fourth round, again, it's kind of going Shevchenko's way. Um, she's getting some takedowns. They're going a little bit even on the feet. Both women are landing. Grasso's boxing is giving Shevchenko some problems, especially because Shevchenko fights southpaw and likes to use open stance attacks. Um, it makes it a little safer to spin. When we're open versus closed, which might seem a little counterintuitive, but it actually, but for some reason it's true. It's a weird thing with like it, this is something I don't understand. 
Um, well, I, again, I sort of understand it. Most of the time when people, when you're fighting open stance, you want outside foot position, so you're kind of always shifting to the outside, which means you're kind of shifting or circling into my spin if I spin for the power leg attack or the spinning back fist, either way. You're kind of circling towards that, so you have to stop and redirect to do what you're supposed to do when you get around someone's, when someone's spinning's attack. If you want to know a way to get around a spinning attack, think of the way they're spinning like a revolving door. So whatever way they spin, you step in and go with them, and you'll get the back. You get back exposure that way. It's not always easy, and boy, you better not be wrong in your read, but if you need an idea. And... And so, again, for open, it's especially tricky in open stance because you can give them outside foot position and they'll feel better, but you're just lining them up for your spinning attacks. Closed stance, it's actually harder um, because you kind of are inclined to go the direction that they're going to spin anyway. So, again, if we're both orthodox and I spin to throw my back leg, you kind of already are in position to push off with your back leg into that same direction, that same kind of diagonal, if you want to get in, instead of the other way around. And it, so it kind of cuts off some of the, and, sorry, Shevchenko likes fighting open stance, the long and the short of that. Grasso, fighting a little switchy, but she did a lot of stuff out of southpaw, and it took Shevchenko a bit to adjust to that. Her, her rear leg kicks were not really on display, um, either to the leg or to the body, which she normally throws a fair number of. She did, however, get her jab going. Because the jab, when you're fighting opposite stances like that open stance, the jab's not nearly the same weapon it is when you're fighting the same stance or closed. Jab's a big deal when you're closed. This is actually why a lot of times when southpaws fight each other, the lead hand work is really awkward. Because they're used to practicing check hooks or hand fighting, and hand, or like trapping and blocking to set up the power hand instead of developing the best jab in the world. Because most of the time you're going to fight someone who, for whom you know, the jab is not necessarily the primary weapon. The primary weapon is either induce and then a check hook or your lead hand kind of parrying theirs as you get outside foot position and then your power hand comes. That's a lot more common. So Shevchenko got her jab working a little bit like the second and third round in particular. It was doing good work. It was the most effective thing that was working in the fourth with Shevchenko's jab. However, a couple of small problems for Shevchenko when she was jabbing. It was a good jab, but her hand would come back a little low. Uh, she'd do the kind of the circular thing, right? You strike, and then instead of it coming straight back, you kind of wind it up first and hit, then it circles back and then comes back up. And that's mechanically easier. It's actually easier to let the momentum work a little bit in your favor, so you do it especially when you start getting tired. But it's not the best way to do it because it leaves your head open. That was one thing. The other problem she had is anytime she jabs, she wouldn't jab an angle. She'd jab and back straight up if Grasso was pressing forward. And Grasso did a lot of pressing forward, to her credit. And one of Shevchenko's weapons, if she feels crowded, she'll throw a spinning back kick. Because if it lands, it hurts. If it doesn't land, it still kind of deters you, because that's a very powerful kick. 
doing it without setting it up, though. Yeah, that's where we got in trouble here. Shevchenko throws it. Does not hit. Grosso sees that it's coming. Jumps on her back. Jumps to the backpack. Forces her down. Starts fighting for the choke. Eventually gets it. Fast. Really nice sequence at the end from Grosso. And thus ends the reign of Valentina Shevchenko. Uh... Not a bad fight. Again, ended in the fourth. Shevchenko kind of wants an immediate rematch. I don't blame her. Again, she was. I had her up 29-28 uh, going into the fourth. I had her winning the fourth before she got caught. Um, she looked a little flat. I had the same. No, I noticed the same thing when she fought Tyler Santos. Like, she's not a big. There's not a ton of like mobility, even when she. Even, like, some of the best performances out of Shevchenko. She's not a big mover, but she's looked fairly flat on her feet the last couple of fights. And I I don't know if she's dealing with something or if it's just age or what, but she's looked a little, a little flat. Um, can I just also say very briefly, I think Aaron Blanchfield, after seeing this, I would take Aaron Blanchfield to probably beat either of these two at this point. I think Shevchenko's slowed down enough and the division has kind of caught up to her enough. And the takedowns that Shevchenko was getting, Blanchfield's grappling is... It's different than Shevchenko's in that it's a bit more purposeful. Which is a weird thing to say. Like, Shevchenko has... She's a good grappler. I'm not trying to... Uh, dem- demean or diminish her skills. But she has a few things that she does. Um, She tends to pass to the same side. She tends to pass to her right. She tends to look for the mounted crucifix. And if she can't quite get it, like, there's not a lot of... She doesn't switch her attacks so much as really commit to getting to the stuff she knows. Right? Now, that's not the worst thing in the world in general, especially if you're good at certain things. But Blanchfield attacks multi-directionally on the ground. And I think that would be a real problem for Grosso. And I think it would... And here's the big takeaway from this that you should have, guys. Takedowns in MMA are kind of hard. Most people, men and women, are pretty good at defending them. And they've become quite good at defending them, and even better, a lot of them, not just at defending, but at scrambling and getting up if they do get taken down. So, how do we mitigate this, if you're a grappler? Turns out... What mo- the solution that a lot of different grapplers have landed on are people who, even if you're not a primary grappler, if this is going to be part of your game. Turns out what a lot of them have decided, I don't need a full takedown. I don't. All I need is to see your back. How did Aljamain Sterling beat Piotr Jan? He got him to expose his back. He didn't take him down all that often. 
uh, again, rewatch their second fight. He doesn't get a lot of takedowns, not traditional ones. But he's able to force different exchanges, parry stuff, misdirect it. Or if he does try a single leg, it's to get Jan to try and limp leg. And as soon as he does, because when you limp leg, you turn. As soon as he does, boom, on the back. How did John Jones get Cyril gone down here? Slipped a punch, got the back. What did Shev- what did Grosso do? Waited for Shevchenko to spun, closed distance, got the back. Didn't get a real takedown in the traditional sense. People have become very, very good about sprawling, down blocking, pummeling, and clinch breaking as a general rule. So if you if grappling's a component of your game, what do you do? You find ways to make them expose their back and then you attack from there. It simplifies a lot of the procedures. So I don't... Shevchenko, look, if you want to make the, the case that anyone deserves an immediate rematch, Shevchenko would absolutely deserve one. Might even win the rematch, in all honesty. But I tend to think Aaron Blanchfield is the one that division's got to watch out for. Especially if Tatiana Suarez is going to straw weight. I think Erin Blanchfield, she might be inevitable at at 125 for the ladies. So again, that was your only upset of the night, but that was a big one. I think Grosso to win by submission was like plus 2,500, something like that. 20 to 1 more odds. Whew. Somebody cashed. If anybody bet that, like... You could have made a lot of money on that. Anyway, that was your co-main event. Featured bout. Jeff Neal misses weight. He weighed 175. Not great. Uh, but Shavkat Rachmanov. I've been on this guy for a while. Not the longest. Um, I think both... Who was it that turned me on to Shavkat? Because I was impressed with his UFC debut. I really was. But... Around the time his signing got announced, I think it was Grabaka Hitman, who was on Twitter going, hey, this guy's good. And when when Kaposa says so-and-so's good, like that guy watches more fights than is advisable. <laughs> I listened to him. He said this guy's good. So I watched a couple of his other fights after his UFC debut, rewatched his UFC debut, and went, this guy's good. I think right around then, Luke Thomas started singing his praises like, boy, this guy's coming on. And then he kept winning. He kept winning. And now he defeats Jeff Neal via, it's listed as a rear naked choke. It's a standing bulldog. I hate to be pedantic about this, but that was a standing bulldog. Um, 417 of the third. This was your fight of the night. And normally one might say, but... Jeff Neal missed weight. Does that mean Shavkat Rachmanov got the full $100,000? Not if you listen to Dana White, who said, I don't care that Jeff Neal missed weight. He's getting his $50,000 for this fight. Further proof, ladies and gentlemen, that the UFC's rules are really just loose guidelines enforced at the capricious whims of UFC brass. Um, this was your, this should have been your fight of the night, for the record. This was again, absolutely your fight of the night. No argument from me whatsoever about that. 
Um, I had Rachmanov winning the first two rounds, then again he gets the third, but Jeff Neal was not going quietly. <laughs> um, Rachmanov didn't get takedowns. I don't think he got any in this fight. A little bit surprising, but Jeff Neal was ready for them. Rachmanov, usually a very good grappler. Um, also a... <laughs> Also not afraid to strike. He he hurt Jeff Neal more than once. Um, again, Neal southpaw, so we had open stances. He landed uh, some pretty good combinations of punches. He had, his kicking game was working. He beat up Jeff Neal's lead leg, actually, a little bit. Um, Neal, for his part, uh, was able to land. Um, Rachmanov spent a little bit too much time in the pocket without moving his head. And that got him tagged on occasion. Now, on the flip side, he got rocked, I think, exactly one. Like, he got hit. But I think the only time he got hurt was a little bit in the third round. And he immediately clinched up, recovered, and then went on to badly hurt Neil standing. And then, again, finish him off. Um, I'm going to just... Let me just get my praise for Rachmanov out of the way here. Good chin... Really good distance management, actually. Um, Dean Thomas called this out. He's good about... If he gets into an exchange, he's good about not going all the way out to try to then have to re-engage. He goes about halfway out, baits your counters, and then re-engages. And that's, that's slick, man. That's some slick stuff. Again, he got hit here. Right? His head movement could use some work. And actually, his hand position, too, when he gets into the pocket, they're a little bit low. But Jeff Neal can thump. And if he only managed to seriously buzz Rachmanov once, that dude's got a chin of iron. Jeff Neal can put your lights out. Um, Shavkat also very, very good at finding in-between spaces for offense. Again, Little bit in, halfway out, and he's landing. When they were tying up, elbows, knees. He was killing Neil with body work all fight. Landed some really nice body kicks. Anytime they tied up, knees to the body, just constantly. Just chipping, chipping, chipping. Hurt him with one or two of them. Just breaking him down. Uh, the finish... Again, he, he badly hurts Neil. He unloads with some... Na uh, he cuts Neil with a head kick in the second round, I think it was. He unloads in the third after... He hurts him with a couple of punches. And he just goes... He goes to town with elbows. He smashes up Neil's nose. Just batters him. Neil turns his back. He grabs it. And... The finish on this choke is so cool. <laughs> he goes um, left arm around the neck. Now, no hooks. Again, they're fully standing. Gets the arm around the neck, because Neil is compromised. Gets the gable grip, so palm to palm. And he then steps outside. I, I can't express to you enough. If you've never... If you're not paying attention, and you don't know the nuance of this, how great this move is. And this might be one of those, like, it's one of those... It's a little bit like stepping over the head with the Kimura. It's one of those things that Yes, you know you should do it, but the in general, kind of the bulldog at all is so rare that you don't see all the nuances all the time. 
And normally the bulldog is done, you know, more on the mat than standing, but he's got the choke and he needs more leverage because he could just kind of try to haul back, but that's probably not going to do it. So what's he do? So his left leg comes around and grapevines kneels right. And this means that he can leverage his back and his hips into this choke and Jeff Neal can't move Normally, you would try... He can't go to... Neil can't go to his own... He can't go towards the side where the fence is. This is Neil's left. That also will tighten up the bulldog choke. You don't want to go off... Whatever side the choking arm is on, you don't want to go to that side because that lets it get deeper. Again, for the bulldog. You want to go the other way. That leg lace, that grapevine, prevents that. He can't go that way anymore, and he can't go the other way because it tightens things. And then, instead of just leaning back with just your back muscles, if we're kind of more chest-to-chest, which can still work, mind you, because he's got the hip angle, he can leverage with his leg muscles into this arch. And Neil taps. Jeff Neal's a tough guy. If he's tapping, that was in there, and he was badly hurt. Uh, Heck of a performance. People were drawing comparisons between this fight and Kamzat Shamaya versus Gilbert Burns. Now... Very different fights in a lot of ways. Burns and Shemaev was much more competitive than this. Shemaev is a very different fighter from Rachmanov. But the general point that a fighter that you thought looked, that was running people over, and you kind of went, okay, but what happens if... dot dot dot. Well, for Shemaev, Gilbert Burns provided the if. And uh, Shemaev, you know, still won that fight, to his credit. Um, wild fight. In this case, Jeff Neal provides the if. What happens if Jeff Neal hits him really hard? What happens if he can't get a takedown? Because that's, that's a decent enough part of Rachmanov's game. The ability to... He's a good striker, I don't mean to say otherwise, but the ability... To get takedowns and to blend that with his striking is part of what makes it work. If you take one away, you know, this has been true about like Frankie Edgar, right? Edgar's striking worked because his wrestling worked. If you were confident enough in stopping his wrestling, his striking game suddenly fell apart. There were all these issues with it that were hidden by his ability to wrestle effectively. Take that away... And his striking game was not nearly as effective. So what happens to so the, the question? If Rachmanov can't get you down, how does his striking game hold up if it's if he's got to strike with you just to strike with you? Turns out pretty good. What happens if he gets hit? Turns out he's got a darn good chin. Um, he is now 17-0 and and 17 finishes. I don't do this very often. I don't very often say I think so-and-so is a future champion. I think Shavkat Rachmanov is a future champion at welterweight. I I really do. The fact that he was able to deal with some adversity here and some non-trivial adversity, the way he reacted to being put in disadvantageous positions was very good. If you see a fighter get hit and get a little bit hurt, you want to see how they react. He reacted the way you're supposed to. 
He didn't stop. He, did, he didn't retreat. He didn't shell up. Reassess. Tie up. This is, this is what boxers are trained to do when they get hurt. What do you do if you're hurt? Clinch. And you're not supposed to clinch in boxing, but if you're hurt, you tie up and you buy yourself every bit of time you can to clear the cobwebs. What did he do when he got hit here? He clinched, slowed things down, got back to work. What you want to see. I mean, again, ideally, you never get hit at all, but we don't live in an ideal world. Um, after the fight, he said he wants a title shot or someone else near the top. He mentioned Colby Covington. We're not sure what's up with Colby at the moment. Um, but he is absolutely going to be fighting someone very near the top. Uh, you could, let me put it this way. He could get a title shot off of this. He won't because of the state of the division. You've got Edwards and Usman's rematch in a couple of weeks, their trilogy fight. Um, you've got Gilbert Burns still kind of in the discussion. We don't know exactly what's up with Kamzat Shemaev, if he's ever going to be at welterweight again. We don't know what Colby's doing. So... The point there is there's still there is still some ambiguity here. But he's probably only one more win away. Like if he if he wins his next fight against another like you put him in there against a top welterweight. Let me see the UFC's ranking page up again. It was down for a while. If it's up again. It seems to be up. So what are we looking at at welterweight? Um, okay, Neil was seven, Rachmanov was nine. So Edwards, Usman, they're fighting. Covington seems to be out of the... Shemayev sitting at three for some reason. Muhammad, Gilbert Burns, Stephen Thompson. Thompson was just above Jeff Neal. Sean Brady's still at eight. Yeah, he's going to fight someone probably in the top five. And frankly, I like his chances against any of them. Yeah, yeah, any of them. So he wins one more. Title shot should be next, especially if he gets another finish. Um, this dude is the truth. I've been banging the drum for this guy, for, for Shavkat Rachmanov, for a little bit. Hate to turn into DC and go that guy, or this guy, as my only descriptor. I've been telling you guys for a while, this, watch out for Shavkat Rachmanov. He, he showed a lot of new people. Uh, you better be ready for him, and you better be ready for him to wear gold, because he probably will. Um... All right, moving on. At lightweight, Mateusz Gamrot defeated Jalen Turner via split decision. There was a 29-28 each way and a 30-27 for Gamrot. The scorecards were all over the place. There was not a single round that was unanimous amongst all three judges, just to give you an idea. Not a single one. Um, Turner had some success. He landed some pretty good strikes. Uh, I thought he won... I gave him the first or the second. I think I gave him the first. Um, 
Look, Gamera took this fight on short notice, so his offense seemed a little bit lessened. But he gets after it. He's got pretty good takedowns. His overall scrambling and wrestling is still very good. Um, setback for Turner. He took a step up, and... I mean, he went from fighting Dan Hooker to fighting Mateusz Gamrat. And those two are... They have very different frames, and they fight in completely different ways. So... I imagine, give Turner another guy, you know, I don't think he should take too big a step down from Gamrod here, but it's still a setback. A uh, solid enough win for Gamrod, who gets back on the horse after the loss to Benil Daryush. And kicking off the main card, the biggest favorite on the card, Bo Nickel, beats Jamie Pickett via arm triangle choke, 254 of the first. Little bit of controversy here. They come out, a little bit of an exchange. Nichols shoots a takedown. They get to the fence. They're clinched up. He throws a knee. That, I don't know. It, it The way Pickett reacted was as though it went into the groin. Now, the camera angle that we have for this shot is not great. Because Pickett's base is split up like it's supposed to be when he's defending the takedown. You widen your base. And the knee that Nickel throws does go, its trajectory is up between the legs. However, it also might just as easily have landed on the belt line instead of in the groin. It, we don't have, we only have like, the only camera angle I saw was, here's the trajectory. And it could have gone either way. Because you can't see the impact. All you can see is knee going up. And it could have gone into the groin. It could have gone into the lower belly. It could The knee could have gone into the lower belly legally. And maybe the shin caught the groin. I don't know. It's... Again, it might have. There's n we were not privy to a good camera angle for it, as a disclaimer. Nickel gets... Pickett reacts, and Nickel gets a takedown off of the reaction. The ref either didn't think it was a low blow or didn't see it one way or the other. Takedown for Nickel. Moves around. Dude, that guy on top, he moves. So good. Gets, uh, gets to, to a front headlock, tries an anaconda, rolls through, gets the back, gets the seatbelt, rolls over, goes for the rear net, goes for the arm triangle. Takes a while to get it. There's a lot of detail he was getting wrong. I mean, wrong. He didn't quite have the arms positioned properly. His back was too high. Uh, he wasn't passing the half guard the way you need to, to really kind of clamp that down. When he finally did pass, like, towards full mount with it, that's when he got the tap, when he was able to bring a bit more leverage to bear. But he spent a lot of time hanging and squeezing when a, he could have saved a lot of effort and achieved that same result probably a little bit faster. Now, he's young in the sport. This is 4-0 and for him. He's outrageously talented. He has very big ambitions. He looked very good here. But if I'm, if you're, you know, like me, and I am like me, 
you know, the details matter. There's a lot of refinement that still needs to happen. There are people who are going to be able to weather the storm he pre presents. And... Nickel seems to take his offensive philosophy from wrestling. Which might make sense. Three-time division one... Like, his wrestling accolades are long and well-earned. However... Wrest the timing of wrestling is not the timing of MMA. And it's a big deal. Wrestling is a sprint. MMA is a marathon. You can't sprint in MMA the way you sprint in wrestling. They're just designed differently that way. What Nickel... And what Nickel does is when he gets on offense, he chains together his attacks very nicely, but very rapidly. And that's a drain. Now, no one's been able to survive him thus far long enough to make this an issue. Someone will, inevitably. That will happen. And at the moment, I don't think his conditioning is... I shouldn't say his conditioning. I don't think his pace will hold up for three rounds. That's not to say his conditioning is bad. That's because if you've never watched amateur wrestling, please do so. It's awesome. But they are going. They are going, they are going, they are going. You might rest for a couple of seconds while you look for an angle, but once things start, it is sprint. It is everything you've got, every bit of speed, every bit of power, as much as you can, because if the other guy's technique is as good as yours or close enough, your speed and your power and your athleticism are what make the difference. Nickel has not yet had to deal with a fight that goes long. I'm, and again, this, these might be some lessons you can only learn the hard way. We'll find out. But the way he attacks now, I don't think that's conducive for... A three round, a fifteen minute fight. I don't think he could keep it up for fifteen minutes. And maybe this is just calculated, and he knows the level of opposition he's at. That's not going to be a problem. But again, a lot of unknowns. But he looked good. Good debut. Nitpicks and stuff. You can. There's details that need to be refined, but. Uh. Yeah, solid enough win, man. Solid win. That was your pay-per-view card. As for the prelims, Cody Garbrandt defeated Trevin Jones via unanimous decision, 29-28s across the board. Okay. Garbrandt wins the first two rounds largely because Jones does nothing. Garbrandt lands a couple of punches, hits a few kicks, a couple of takedowns. Third round, he does very little. And he gets tagged more than once, but ultimately survives the round, gets the decision... Garbrandt is with, um, with Dewey Cooper now, I think. One of his trainers. I forget where Cooper trains. Is he an extreme couture guy? Uh, give me half a second. If I can't find this answer quickly, I'll... I'll move on, but... Because I know his... I just want to know... 
He might have his own gem. Or probably be part of a different one. Um. Okay, I mean, he's you know, trained with, uh, you know, Fran I mean, Francis Ngannou trained with him for a while. Kevin Lee, like, plenty of guys have trained. He's a good trainer. I'm just, I forget what gym he operates out of or if he's just, he doesn't have a gym proper and is kind of a guy for hire, which is not a bad thing either, by the way, but anyway. So I think he's training with him, which might be a good fit if, the, if that gets time to settle. Um, but Garbrandt's offense really dropped off. His chin is still an issue. Uh, this was the softest touch he was going to get, and it still got dicey at the end. After the fight, in an interview with Aaron Bronstetter, Garbrandt revealed that he suffered some kind of an injury a couple of weeks out in training, and one of his arms like went numb, and then one of the takedowns he hit exacerbated that and caused it to go numb again. Now, full disclaimer, not a doctor, don't know the details of Cody Garbrandt's injury, or even if he's telling the truth. I, I assume he is. However, I've heard that story before. I think we all have. Usually, that's a real bad indicator about the health of your neck. And that's not a good thing. You d your neck's one of those things, man. You just don't screw with it. So, it, if Cody's neck has turned into just, you know, a pile of gravel, which is an exaggeration on my part, but, you know, you listen to some of the guys who have had neck injury issues, they tell that same story. They tell pretty much that exact same story, by the way, about what happened. Listen to Kurt Angle talk about his neck issues and the atrophy he suffered in an arm. Uh, Boss Rutten, Chris Weidman, take your pick any of these guys that have dealt with neck issues like that uh, they tell that similar story you know there was something that happened and then part of my then it just went numb and it's a I hope I'm wrong I hope it's not serious please get that checked out and fixed if it's your neck don't screw with it um, but not a confidence-instilling performance out of Cody Garbrandt, but a win he desperately needed. Uh, middleweight. Uh, DDP, Drakus Duplessis, defeated Derek Brunson via corner stoppage, TKO 459 of the second. Um, Derek, <laughs> dude, I, I said it before, man. Drakus Duplessis is an awkward guy. But I got a soft spot for some of the awkward guys. I, I'll usually find one or two that I've just got a soft spot for. And he's one of them. Uh, first round a little bit tough. We got some back and forth stuff. Brunson, I think, landed a couple of good punches. Got a takedown. They spent a good chunk of it wrestling. I think Brunson... I think he had Brunson winning the first round. But second round... And everyone gets on Duplessis for looking tired very quickly two things one to get the obvious out of the way yeah there's some fatigue that sets in and this is not about how he breathes because everyone else looks at that uh oh he's breathing out of his mouth already uh he 
He says he's got a badly messed up nose and he actually can't breathe deeply through it. And I don't, like, that's actually not all that uncommon. Uh, Vanderlei Silva had that problem. Uh, plenty of boxers have. Like, if he's got stuff messed up there, you have to go in and surgically correct it. And if he needs, if there's oxygen demands on his body, and if you can't really breathe through your nose, you have to breathe through your mouth. The fatigue that kind of gets with him is it's less to do with how he's breathing and a bit more to do with how he moves. You can kind of see it setting in. Like, things get sluggish. But his cardio is better than you think it is if all you go on is body language and mouth breathing. I'm not saying it's great. I'm saying if you think he's gassed, when it when some of the visual indicators are there, you're going to be wrong because some of those visual indicators are misleading in his case. He did get look, he did fatigue against Brunson here. These two guys fought at kind of like this wasn't the craziest paced fight, but man, were they doing like they did a lot of work for as long as this lasted. There was a lot of effort put forth. Second round, Brunson's the one who looks like he's gassing and Duplessis starts hitting him. Uh, he did some decent work, a little bit of decent switching from Duplessis. I think he landed some nice calf kicks. Uh, he just started landing punches, and Brunson faded, and Duplessis kept the pressure, was able to keep some of the damage coming, got him down at the end of the fight, landed enough ground and pound. The last one in particular, so they're both fatigued. He's got Brunson down. Brunson's got his guard kind of closed, and kind of, he's tired. You know, Duplessis's been pushing, so he's a little bit fatigued and, and kind of like, oh boy. Could use that minute between rounds because I know I got you after that, but, you know, he's feeling it a bit. And he lands this really nice, like, right hammer fist and then a left, it's kind of a hook, but you know, ground and pound hooks are not a traditional boxing hook. And he's landed a few good punches from closed guard. And these last two... Um, they hurt Brunson bad, and he half turns away, rolls to a hip. The towel comes in, the round ends, and one of the commissioners points out to the referee that, oh, hey, the towel came in before the end of the round. Um, yeah, look, man, I don't know exactly what the ceiling is for the Dracus Duplessis, but he's going to surprise a lot of people. and he, I mean, he already has. You know, there were a lot of people thinking, you know, Derek Brunson's got him. Hey guys, I don't have anything against Derek Brunson, but his striking technique ain't great. He's got some power, but it's not great, and he's f almost 40. There's a f at middleweight, there's a physical price to that. And Duplessis, you know, dealt with some bad stuff and wore him down. Just kind of how it happened. Uh... Yeah, that should put... You know, Duplessis was, I think, 10 coming into this, and I want to say Brunson was 5. Uh, this will put him near the top and should get him a top-ish fighter. I don't know who exactly, but... And, look, you can keep poking holes in what the guy does stylistically, and I'm not saying there's not holes to be poked. Like, some of his striking, is, again, it's a bit awkward. He doesn't move his head as much as you'd like. He does seem to slow a little bit. Like He does this weird thing where that first round, he kind of sprints. 
But the pace he drops to in the second is a pace he can maintain. So it starts really high, drops, and then kind of levels off. Like, look at some of his other fights. The pace he slows to in the second, it's slower than the opening, but it's consistent after that point instead of continuing to drop off. Uh, so, you know, again, that's certainly that's certainly nothing to sneeze at if you can weaponize that. Um, so I don't know exactly who would be next for him, but yeah, keeps winning. And he's going to lose eventually, I'm fairly sure. Again, there's some awkwardness there, but, you know, he's beaten the guys you put in front of him, and you can't ask for more than that. He's beaten two ranked guys. Because Till was ranked when they fought, and here Brunson was ranked. And you Brun- Look, I kind of clown on Till still being in the rankings when they fought. I'm not going to clown Brunson being in the rankings. Maybe a little high for my taste, but somewhere in that top 10 space, easily. Pretty easily. And he should have been there, so. Uh, again, top 5-ish guy coming your way sooner rather than later. And depending on which one, he might still win, like. Dude, him and Jared Cannonier might be just the weirdest of the weird. Um, who else might make sense? Him and Marvin Vittori would be two gentlemen built very similar. They're built both built kind of like cinder blocks, and they both fight a little bit like meatheads. And I say that with a degree of affection, so I'm not I'm not trying to be insulting there. That might be those two guys kind of button heads might be interesting. Uh, I don't know, but dude keeps winning. Gotta keep giving him an escalating level of competition until he starts losing. That's kind of how that works. Um, Amanda Hebos defeated Viviani Araujo via unanimous decision. A 29-27, 30-26, and 30-27. No issues with a 10-8 for Hebos. Um... Once Hebus got settled, like, she looked real jittery in the first. Once she got settled in the second and third, kind of started working for her. Uh, solid enough win. Nothing really sticks out. Uh, middleweights, Marc-Andre Barrio defeats Julian Marquez via TKO punches, 4-12 of the second. Late stoppage here by the ref. Could have stopped this earlier. Um, good enough first round for Marquez, but Barrio's thing is... He started to figure this out a little bit, I think. It used to be that he was just kind of a punching bag for the first two rounds and started to come on in the third and hope that you were tired from punching him. He started to weaponize that a little bit faster than he used to. Uh, Kept a pretty good pace, kept good pressure, good about finding offense in the clinch and whatnot. Solid win for Barrio. Uh, Then we had our break while they were filming a movie. Early prelims, um, Ian Gary defeated Song Kanan via TKO punches, 422 of the second. Um, really nice performance out of Gary. He got caught and dropped with a left hook in the first. Seemed to adjust, uh, just kept a good pace. Pretty decent in and out. There's a couple of things that might still get him in trouble. He's still not great on defense. He relies a little bit too much on reaction time and spacing. Um, And his hands are a bit low, but he's got some offensive firepower. He throws in combination. 
when he gets going, he's pretty relentless, and he's good about just... He's normally pretty good about kind of staying active. You know, this was easily the best he's looked in general. Uh, at Bantamweight, um, uh, again, one of the competitors here, Mana Martinez, missed weight. Um, Cameron Simon defeated Mon uh, Leo Mana Martinez via majority decision. 29-26, 28-27, and 28-28. I'd be curious about that some of those scores. There was a point deduction for Simon in round one. Um, I gave Simon all three rounds. The... So I was... Tw I was, what, 29... I think it was 29-27. I think I gave him a 10-8. There ten, was there maybe a 10-8 in there? I forget. Um, look, here's the thing about Simon. He's pretty good. He's got good hands. He's got a pretty good ground game. Like He's a good, developing, well-rounded fighter. He's young, and good grief does he need to calm down. He had points deducted in his first fight when he landed an illegal knee to the head of a downed opponent. Here, he kicked Mana Martinez in the groin twice in the first round. Now, in somewhat fairness to Simon on the first one of these, he's throwing the inside leg kick to the thigh. Martinez, I don't know why exactly, when he sees it coming drops his level and because he's moving and dropping that kick goes from being targeted high-ish on the inner thigh to hitting the groin because the whole thing dropped because Martinez's body dropped Herb Dean the referee told him after that first one look he was dropping you're also throwing that real high watch it and Simon, you know, little bit did, but he was still, that's a, that was a weapon he was using. And the fact that the only defense Martinez seemed to have for it was dropping lower. So he got kicked in the groin. And he, again, that's, it, that's exactly what happened the second time. And the ref takes a point. I mean, those were bad kicks, man. I don't blame Martinez for like, he took a lot of time. I mean, those hurt. And the ref took a point. He kind of had to. They were bad kicks. Uh, so, so, wasn't there... Then I think there was... Uh, there was a bit of an eye poke in the third round. Which, in and of itself, like, in a vacuum, it was the kind of thing that happens on occasion when guys are breaking the clinch or getting out of the pocket. But in totality, not great. So, look, man. Settle. Just settle you're getting a little wild at times and it's gonna cost you and he says you know i'm not a dirty fighter i don't think most of like i'm not accusing him of intentionally fouling but you're being a little reckless man you gotta sort that out because there's a he's got a fair amount of ability but if he doesn't sort that out this is gonna haunt him like, it's only gonna get worse uh, Strawweight, Tabitha Ricci, armbar, Jessica Penne, 214 of the second. Um, 
Fritchie just better. No, I don't have a whole lot of specifics to go into there. Bantamweight, Farid Basharat defeated Damon Blackshear via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. Uh, Farid, the brother of Javid, uh, Javid Basharat, who's got two wins in the UFC. Um, Blackshear didn't, he didn't do too badly. I think he won the third round, but mostly this was Basharat's fight. Um, I don't, not a lot of detail to get into there. And kicking everything off, I only caught the last two rounds of this. Loic Rajabov uh, defeated Esteban Rybovich via unanimous decision, 29-28. Uh, my assumption is Rajabov wins rounds one and three, with Rybovich taking the second. Again, I didn't see the first round, but the way everyone was talking about it, that's my assumption. Um, Rajabov got a bit of a motor on him. I mean, he got hurt. Uh, Rybovich was able to crack him a few times, but... Rajabov cracked him right back. Um, he's got some power. Relentless wrestling. This was a fun little fight to kick off the night. So That was the card. Your bonuses. I mentioned already fight of the night. Uh, Rachmanov and Jeff Neal in the UFC saying, screw it to our guidelines. We do what we want. And my only objection to that, for the record, my objection to this is you've screwed over fighters for a long time. With your capricious decision-making. If you want your standard to be, if you miss weight, you're still bonus eligible, fine, that should be your standard. Violating your rules because you feel like it means they're not actually rules. It's your whim. And you won't be honest about that, so. I'm not, that again, that said, like, I'm not mad about Jeff Neal getting paid more. Like, he's still got fined 30% of his purse. I don't like that he missed weight. But that was your fight of the night, and again, deservedly so. Performances went to John Jones, Alexa Grasso, and Bo Nickel. Um, no objection there. Uh, yeah, no objection to that. I mean, you maybe could have gone Gary instead of Nickel. That would have been like that would have been the other one that you kind of that would have been in the running. Because I don't think you would give it to Duplessis. I don't think you'd give it to Barrio either. I think Gary's performance would have been higher up on the pecking order. So, again, Nickel and Gary might be a touch interchangeable, but Grosso and Jones 100% deserve those bonuses. 100%. That was the event. You can find my full report in the MMAZone of 411mania.com. Good grief, we've been going a long time. Give that a read if you're so inclined. I always appreciate that. I will try to speed this up a little bit. Unless you're stuck in traffic and you're just really happy to have me as company. Or you're using my voice to put your kids to sleep. I've been told I'm good at that. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, but not a joke. Like I have um, I've, I have had people reach out for this podcast or some of the other ones I've done. The, that, yeah, my kids like listening to some of the movie reviews or whatnot to go to sleep. And I don't know. if, Dude, if my voice helps your kids sleep... I'm happy to help, man. Getting them to sleep is a can be a pain in the butt. So if I'm able to contribute, I am happy to do so. So, anyway, moving on. UFC on ESPN plus 79. Coming to you Saturday, March 11th, from the theater at Virgin Hotels. Okay, that's what it was. I knew it was something like that. 
Uh, again, it is at that location because the apex is reserved for the slapping of the power. Um, decent card here, actually. Main event. Again, I'll try to be a bit brief here. Pyotr Jan and Marab really. Is this Marab's first five-rounder in the UFC? I think it is. First fight ever. He's been scheduled for five before, but he's never gone five. His previous title fights, one ended in the second, and w one ended in the first. It was, in fact, it was that um, that 15 second win that got him into the UFC, because that was on, I believe that was on one of Dana White's looking for a fight things. Then he loses his first couple of fights in the UFC, goes on his winning streak that he's currently on. He's on seven fight winning streak. That's hard to do. He's beaten some good guys along the way. I mean, it broke my heart when he beat Jose Aldo the way he did. It was just not all that interesting. But Jan, on the other hand, that man, he needs a win. His only win in the last little bit, he beat Corey Sandhagen. So he was disqualified fighting Aljamain Sterling and deserved to be disqualified for that. I believe I said so at the time. Like, you can't do that, man. Beats Corey Sandhagen. Good fight. Drops a split decision to Aljamain Sterling. There's an argument that he won, but most people scored it for Sterling and fair enough. Drops a split decision to Sean O'Malley that I really thought he won. Now... That said, O'Malley gave him more problems than... O'Malley actually gave him more problems than Sterling did. Which is kind of a weird thing, but... Like, he and O'Malley had a fight. Um, Boss really trains with Aljamain Sterling, so he might be pretty well prepared for a lot of what Jan does. Boss really might have the best motor I've ever seen. That guy just... Apart from fighting in Salt Lake City when he... <laughs> uh, between respect for Jose Aldo and I think the altitude surprising him, he, he didn't have the same offensive output he normally does. Uh, he'll probably be a bit more back on form in this one. I don't know, man. Jan might be slipping. And I hate to say that because there's a lot of how Jan fights that I really like. He's a mean fighter and I like mean fighters as a general rule. He's only 30... But he's coming up on 10 years. He debuted professionally in 2014. So, December 14. So, again, like, you start come creeping up on that decade of fighting, that'll get to you. Um, Jan's a decent counter-grappler. Pretty good wall-walker. Dwellis really is not much of a finish threat. Like, if you got a big knock on Dwellish, really, his striking is wild, and he's not a big... Again, he's not a big threat to finish you. I mean, he got hurt bad by Marlon Marais. Like, his only finish in the UFC is Marlon Marais, and that was as much cardio as it was anything else, and Marais being a little bit washed at that point. Everything else is a decision. How many finishes does he have? He's only got four finishes in his entire career. 19 fights, 4 finishes. 
Sorry, let me do that by wins. 15 wins, four finishes. Because his lo he's only been finished once, too. Like, his other losses are by decision. So. I'm going to go with Jan here. But if he is starting to slip and be that, you know, physically or mentally or whatnot, this might not go his way. This is not a... I'm not nearly as confident predicting this as maybe I would have been not that long ago, so... Uh, co-main event, heavyweights, because we must have heavyweights on the main card. I still don't know why. That said, we've got decently relevant heavyweights. Um, Alexander Volkov and Alexander Romanov. Now, Volkov turned in a pretty good performance, actually, his last time out when he beat Jarzinho Rosenstruik. Um, that was after, he, dude, he had a tough loss when he fought Tom Aspinall. Um, he rebounded well when he beat Rosenstruck. That was a, that was a very solid performance. Romanov is coming off of his first ever loss where he had a good first round, but he couldn't keep the pace. He was fighting at altitude. That was at Salt Lake as well, UFC 278. And Tabora just kind of weathered the early storm, stuck around and beat him up the other two rounds. Um... That said, like, there's a very real argument that fight should have been a draw, giving uh, Tibora, giving Romanov a 10-8 first. That's a real argument. Um, in fact, that might have been how I scored it, but I'm also, like, not up in arms over it. I'm going to go with Volkov here. I, I think the length might give Romanov problems. Then again, yeah, I'm going to go with Volkov, like, that first round, if Romanov's going to win, it'll be in the first round. It's going to be my hunch. But if Volkov keeps that fight, keeps the first round under control, even if he loses it, I think he takes over the longer this goes. Uh, featherweights. Uh, Ricardo Hamosh and Austin Lingo. Uh, Lingo, 2-1 and one in the UFC. Two-fight winning streak. This is a step up for him, though. Because Hamosh is pretty darn good. Hamosh, he's been up and down in the UFC. I mean, he won his first three, then lost to Saeed Nurmagomedov, won two, lost to Lerone Murphy, beat Bill Algio, lost to Zubair Tukhugov. Coming off a win over Danny Chavez. It was June of last year. He'd been out for a while. He was supposed to fight... Okay, he was supposed to fight in September, and that fell apart. Um, This seems like a... This seems like a fairly easy pick for Hamosh. Bantamweights. Ooh, buddy, this fight. Uh, Saeed Nurmagomedov, who is... His only loss in the UFC, he ran into Hani Barcelos as kind of his learning experience. Um, his UFC record is... 6-1. and one. He's on a four-fight winning streak. He was struggling in that Saeed Yakub kakramanov fight before he caught that ninja choke, but... Dude, he beat the crap out of Douglas Silva de Andrade. Um, he's fighting Jonathan Martinez, who is an insanely hard kicker on a four-fight winning streak and stopped Cub Swanson with leg kicks his last time out. This is a very good fight. I'm going to lean towards Nuraga Madoff just a bit. 
just a bit. This is a very good fight. I just think, I think on the feet at distance, Numagamadov's a little bit flashy, and Martinez might be able to settle things down very quickly. But once they tie up and start fighting there, I think Numagamadov might have an advantage. But that's a very good fight. Uh, let's see, light heavyweights. God, why? Um, Vitor Petrino and Anton Turkali. Turkali is 0-1 in the UFC, I recall. Let me double-check briefly. Yeah, Turkali lost his UFC debut. Uh, that was to Jailton Almeida, so fair play. Almeida's very good. And Petrino, undefeated. I believe he's making his debut. Yes, he is. Um, I think I'll go with Petrino, actually. He's like a little bit of a softer touch for a contender series guy. Though, man, I'm not going to call that a gimme. Uh, let's see. Heavyweights. Heavyweights. Uh, Carl Williams and Lukas Breschke. Let's see here. Williams is... Oh, is that the Virgin Islands uh, flag? It is the U.S. Virgin Islands flag. <laughs> My flag knowledge. It is not perfect, but it is superior to a great many people. Um, he is making his UFC debut. Four-fight winning streak. It's nothing to sneeze at. Uh, Breschke, I believe, has fought in the UFC before. And I believe I'm pronouncing that right, but I might not be. I, mean, I know that's Wukas. Because the L with the slash in Polish. Um, he is. Uh, yeah, lost to Martin Bidet in his UFC debut. That was a split decision. I don't recall the details. Um, let's go with Breschke there. Why not? Uh, I'm I'm kind of just pecking it. That's not fully at random. I've seen Breschke fight. I have not seen Williams fight. So, uh, Bantamweights, another good fight here. Bantamweights, bring it. Um, Rafael Asensau and Davy Grant. Um, Asensau got a win over Victor Henry to break a four-fight losing streak. Rough stretch for him, man. Mar yeah, Marlon Moraes who head kicked him and guillotined him. Corey Sandhagen, who just kind of beat him up everywhere. Cody Garbrandt knocked him the hell out. And then Ricky Simone stopped him. Um, yeah, he needs to win badly. And Davey Grant, fun little fighter, coming off a win over Louis Smolka. That split decision loss to Adrian Yanez, not, not a split. <laughs> Yanez... Um, the split there was very, very weird. Um, it's not that Grant had no success, but Yanya's that was his fight. And he lost to Marlon Vera before that. I mean, Marlon, some of these losses have aged quite well. But some of them not so much. Um, I mean, he beat Marlon Vera earlier in like 2016. Vera... That rematch in 2021 was not terribly close. It was fight of the night, but it was not... 
That was Vera's fight, pretty much start to finish. I'm actually going to take Davy Grant here. I mean, I look, I respect Austin Sal's work. I just think he's washed. Washed, sorry, washed might be a bit uncharitable. Let me put it this way. He's 40. He is 40. And almost 41. He'll be 41 in July. He has 37 professional fights. And he's been fighting since 2004. I don't feel it's unfair to say he's over the hill. 40 at bantamweight. Almost 40 fights. Almost... 18 years of fight, over 18 years of fighting. He's, he's into his 19th. He's debuted in January of 04. So, yeah. Dude's in his... Is he in his 20th? Sorry, I'm mathing horribly. He's in his 20th, because January of this year would have been 19, and January of next year will be... 20. So in his 20th year, hasn't hit 20 years yet, but he's coming to the 20-year point of fighting. Uh, I'm doing that wrong. Maybe it's 19th. No, because, again, you're in your first year, then you're one. Yeah, so in his 20th year, coming up on number 20, yeah, I don't mind saying he's a little bit past it. And I don't think Davy Grant is yet. Grant, again, Grant's a little bit wild. A little bit sloppy. I'm not going to be shocked if Austin Sal wins. But it's kind of at the point with him where I don't know. I, there was a while when I just, it was he was a fairly safe pick. That is not the case anymore. Uh, at all. See, middleweight... Uh, Sandecris, ooh, where's this gentleman from? He's from the United States. Which means this could be pronounced any number of ways, actually. Um, Cedricus Duma, that's what I'm going with. He is 7-0, coming into his UFC debut. Was supposed to fight Abu Azaitar. Uh, instead, will now fight Josh Fremd. Azaitar pulled out. Fremd, on the other hand, he is eh, middling. He's 9-4, and 0-2 oh in the UFC. Losses to Anthony Hernandez and Trishan Gore. I, on short notice, I'll go with Dumas. Uh, I think we're back to bantamweight here. Mario Bautista and Guido Canetti. Bautista's on a pretty decent winning streak, actually. Uh, his UFC, he's only lost, he lost to Corey Sandhagen in his UFC debut. Won a couple of fights, lost to Trevin Jones. That has not aged well. Then won three in a row. Last beating, uh, submitting both Brian Kelleher and Benito Lopez. I was just coming off a long layoff for that fight. Um, what has Mr. Kennedy been doing? He beat Randy Costas last time out. I think I picked that one, actually. Uh, he beat Chris Moutinho before that. Not terribly difficult. Um, I'm I'm going to go with Batista here. Women's flyweight Ariane Lipsky and J.J. Aldrich. 
Um, Lipsky way up and down in the UFC. Lost to Priscilla Cachuea, which is never a good sign. Aldrich is just kind of a perpetual good but never quite great fighter. She got beat up by Aaron Blanchfield, though. Could Yeah, that was ugly. Uh, this is the kind of fight Aldrich usually wins. Bantamweights again. A lot of bantamweights. Makes for a good night of fights, usually. Uh, Victor Henry fights Tony Gravely. Gravely, sorry, Gravely. Gravely, eh. He's what, four and three in the UFC? That's uh, probably a Henry pick. Quick look at Victor Henry. I think he's what, one and one in the UFC? He's got a good overall record of 22 and six. Trained with Josh Barnett, I seem to recall. Uh, yeah, he's one and one in the UFC. Yeah, beat Hani Barcelos, pretty big upset actually, and then lost to Austin Sow. Tough fight. Yeah, I'll pick Henry here. And Gravely's fine. I don't mean to demean to demean him. Uh, flyweights. Tyson Nam and Bruno Gustavo da Silva. Mr. Nam. Uh, knocked out Ode Osborne his last time out. That was solid. Um, he's done okay since returning to the UFC. He's 3-3. Three three. Lost to Sergio Pettis, Kai Kerr de France, and Matt Schnell. So, not losing to Scrubs. You're not beating anybody whose name you'd recognize, I think. But, um, whereas Mr. Da Silva... Um, is this the Machida guy? Sorry, I gotta double check this. I forget. Like, this might be one of the guys who trains with the Machida brothers. He's on a two-fight winning streak. Granted, J.P. Bays and Victor uh, Rodriguez. Losses to Tigir Ulanbekov and David Vorak. Um... I'll go with Nam, actually. Sure. Yeah, go with Nam. Not not sold on it completely, but enough. Um, let's see. Welterweights. Carlston Harris and Abubakar Nurmagomedov. Harris went 2-0 in the UFC before running into Shavkat Rachmanov. Uh, been out for over a year. His wins are over Christian Aguilera and Impa Kasanganai. And again, I can't blame anybody for getting beaten by Rachmanov. Um, Nurmagomedov. Uh, he's been a little bit up and down. Lost his UFC debut against David Zvada. Beat Jared Gooden and Gazio uh, Margazi of sense. I'll go with Nurmagomedov. Yeah, I'll go with Nurmagomedov there. And that is the card. So, Saturday. I will have coverage of that in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. So, if you're so inclined, please do stop by, say hello. I always appreciate it. All right, let's talk news very briefly. Because we're, we're getting up there and I don't want to be here forever. Um, let's start with The Ultimate Fighter 31. This has been filming... And apparently it is a clown fiesta. Reports of 
First, there were reports of Connor being drunk and passing out his whiskey to the fighters in the house. I'm surprised he does not have a contract wherein his whiskey is the exclusive whiskey of the Ultimate Fighter house, but then again, maybe he does. Um, so that's never a good look. Now, reports of his intoxication might be exaggerated, but there's a lot of booze in that house. And guys usually get pretty hammered. Then there were reports of some kind of an altercation between him and Michael Chandler. And the only thing Dana White said about it was stuff happened that shouldn't have happened. Tune into the show if you want to see the details, I suppose. Um, yeah, this is not going great. Just throwing that out there. Not going great. Um, between fighters being told you're part of the cast and flying out to Vegas and then being told, sorry, Connor pulled the strings. And now, incidents. Um, you can argue there's no such thing as bad publicity. And maybe this draws a degree of attention to this season of The Ultimate Fighter, but... The last thing the UFC needs right now is this kind of headache. Just the last thing they need is this headache. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to watch. I don't watch The Ultimate Fighter, but I haven't for a really long time. But maybe some people will, and maybe this will draw them to it. Who knows? All right, next up, Darren Till, no longer with the UFC. Um, he said he requested his release. Depending on how you want to interpret some of the stuff he's said, this might just be to get health help for his knee. He said specifically there's some injections he's looking to get. So can we just talk for a minute, just a second or two here, about how stupid USADA is? There's only... There's no way to spin this wherein USADA looks good. Either, A, Darren Till needs medical treatment for his knees and literally has to leave their program to get it because they're so bad at their jobs that they can't figure anything out, in which case USADA sucks. Or B, Darren Till's about to go on all of the gear, in which case getting released by the UFC, juicing up and then getting back in is just a workaround to USADA which means they suck at their jobs. <laughs> um, look. Darren Till got pushed way too hard, way too fast. I give full credit to Jeff Harris. He was singing that song for a long time. Before a lot of people. Uh, I mean, I didn't think he beat Stephen Thompson when they fought. I scored that for Thompson. But he said, no, Darren Till's just a hype job. I'm not sure it was just a hype job, but he should never, like... Dude, Tyron Woodley finished him. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little punchy. That shouldn't be as funny as it is, but... Yeah. The last guy Tyron Woodley finished in the UFC, in MMA, was... Was Darren Till. Yep. So... Again, he got pushed too hard too fast. Um, he needs to sort his game out, needs to sort out his body. I don't have any, like, I'm not wishing ill upon him. Being out of the UFC for a bit of time, either for medical reasons or for, to get some confidence back, to get some assurity in your game, I think that's not the worst thing in the world. 
Alright, and lastly, as far as what I have at the moment, I didn't want to talk about this, but I am put in a position wherein I think I kind of have to, if only very briefly. Let's talk Power Slap. I said my piece on this, and I was content to let it die or live on its own merits. Probably die. I know I'm repeating myself from earlier, but here's the thing. Here's why I feel compelled to bring this up very briefly here. One, the UFC event is being, again, this upcoming event is not at the apex because of Power Slap. The UFC's call on that. Fair enough. I don't know how wise an idea it is, but it's their facility to use how they see fit. They could sell tickets to Jan versus Marab. They probably could not sell for Power Slap. Now, I am now also somewhat forced to discuss this because your commercials for Power Slap keep popping up on UFC product. I don't want to watch it. And according to Dana White, if I don't want to watch it, he's not asking me to watch it. Okay, I won't watch it. I haven't, and I won't. But <clears throat> you don't get to throw it free advertising, I'm assuming free advertising, on your show constantly, and then get offended when people say, you know, what are you doing foisting this? You don't get to then pull the no one's asking you to watch it card. Yeah, you are. Explicitly, you are. Your, I'm not asking you to watch it shtick, or no one's forcing you, is a load of, it's a load of crap. It's promotional double talk. I mean, it, I hate using this word because it's used so improperly. It borders on gaslighting. Again, not actual gaslighting. Again, the word gets used wrong all the time, but it borders on it. Now, I am also compelled to bring up to bring this up because this thing is predictably falling flat on its face. Its ratings have done nothing but go down and go down and go down. Okay. Minor caveat. They started badly. They went up the second week, and they went down and down and down and down and down. Um, Dana has flatly been lying about this. He did the, well, nobody, because they used AEW's Dynamite as their lead-in, which is a, uh, look, Dynamite consistently does right around a million viewers. Pretty, con again, pretty consistently. And the line, well, nothing's done well after this, yes. Okay, brief aside. You want to know a real dirty secret about professional wrestling and professional wrestling fans and net? I don't know why. Like, the only network that figured this out was the CW, which was a badly run organization that lost money for years and years and years. All right, but here's what the CW figured out years ago, 20 years ago. More than, maybe. A long time ago. So let, let's talk networks very briefly. Way back in the day, SmackDown at one point landed on the UPN network. If you don't know what that is, 
I'm old. But this was a thing for a while, was the UPN network, and SmackDown was one of the shows that it had. This was actually easier to find than Raw, because Raw was on, I at the time Raw was on, it was TNN, they hadn't, I don't think they'd quite rebranded as Spike TV yet, or they were in the process of it. But that's where Raw was, that was cable exclusive. UPN was terrestrial broadcast. I got this with God, my rabbit ears set, my rabbit ears TV set. I know for a, some of you younger people, I am speaking gibberish, but bear with me. And SmackDown was, this was, SmackDown was good quality professional wrestling at the time. But UPN and the WB channel, the Warner Brothers channel, which was also terrestrial broadcast, merged and they formed the CW. And the CW became a joke after a while. Like, the CW style of show and production, like, it's a thing. But they had shows. I mean, Supernatural was there for, like, 20 years. But, you know, they did stuff like that. You know, Supernatural or One Tree Hill. I think the Riverdale, the new Riverdale show was there. Like, they, they did crap like that. Not my thing. If it was your thing, fair play. I, I didn't hate Supernatural. But, again, you, you get the, you get the, point about the kind of stuff they do, right? Well, they inherited SmackDown when they absorbed UPN. And so they broadcast SmackDown. It was Thursday nights at the time, I believe. And SmackDown was consistently the highest rated show on the CW. Again, consistently. They did not renew their contract at a certain point. Now, you might be asking yourself, what a lot of people might be asking themselves, why would you not renew the contract for your highest-rated television show? The answer is pretty darn simple, actually. Professional wrestling fans, the fans who would watch SmackDown, would not watch other CW content. This was true of UPN, too, by the way. Now... This is true of professional wrestling across the board, believe it or not. I don't care what network Raw was on. SmackDown or USA. They're on USA now, but whatever. SmackDown or uh, Raw. Raw's a fairly highly rated television show. Not not the greatest, but... And the, again, they've had their ups and downs, but they draw a good audience. Pretending otherwise is to deny reality. You know, SmackDown, which is currently on Fox. But people who watch that don't usually stick around for whatever comes after. The fact that The Ultimate Fighter actually did find some success in that time slot for a while on Spike TV is, was kind of an aberration. It didn't usually happen. Even the first season of The Ultimate Fighter shed a giant percentage of Raw's audience, but because Raw had pretty good numbers, actually, back then. But neither here nor there. The point is, if professional wrestling is on your channel, if it's a well-run promotion, that you'll find an audience. People watch AEW. About a million people watch Dynamite a week. Raw draws... I forget what it is. You know, they, they draw, like, their 3 million or whatever viewers. SmackDown draws their whatever million viewers. 
but you don't get a lot of transfer from that audience to anything else on your station before, after, or at any other point in the week. It's a hard thing to try and get professional wrestling fans to stick around for other content is kind of the long and the short of that. So when he says, you know, everything struggled after AEW on TBS, are they still on TBS? Or do they get bumped? Yeah, they were on TNT, now they're on TBS. I forget, I forget, but... Either way, the point still stands. Like, having to follow a professional wrestling slot is difficult. And Dana just lying about the percentage. Like, no, we retain a good percentage of their audience. We know the numbers, man. You can't, you can lie about this, but we know you're lying. And the the plan was for the finale of Power Slap to have a pay-per-view. Everyone and their dog could tell you this was a bad idea. They wanted to do it anyway. The ratings have become so bad that the finale of Power Slap is now no longer pay-per-view. It is going to be streamed on the Rumble platform, and I don't know what that is. Apparently no one knows what that is. Like, it, it... I mean, the only thing I've heard about it are like the jokes that it's a... Because everything that is not mainstream technology is like lambasted as right wing but it, like it's i've seen like it's the right wing alternative to youtube like guys right wing conservative content actually does fine enough numbers on youtube as a general rule because it feeds the algorithm in inappropriate ways ditto a certain variety of leftist content on youtube because it feeds the algorithm outrage in a certain way and it does fine but there's always some percentage of malcontents on either end of the extreme for a political... Usually this revolves around weird views. And again, this is not right or left wing. You got weirdos at the extremes. I don't care what your, I don't care what your general political leanings are. You got the weirdos. And the weirdos are always whining about something. And if they're not happy with how things are going on a mainstream site like YouTube, which is darn near a monopoly we will create our own and rumble is apparently one of those creations like we're going to create an alternative to twitter sure knock yourself out man i don't care and that's what this is so you went from i'm gonna recreate all my success with the ufc to diminishing ratings, to we'll still hold a pay-per-view, to no, you won't, it will fail miserably, stream on this obscure streaming platform. It's not even DAZN. You couldn't even get on DAZN. And I find this hilarious, by the way, just for the record. And I said this, you want to go back to when this stuff kind of got announced, you can fact-check me on this. I said this. How long before Dana White starts blaming the MMA media for the failure of this thing? Turns out three weeks. Dana is now touting that he's creating another hit piece. I'm making a documentary. You're not making a documentary, buddy. You're cobbling together sound bites from people you don't like. If you'll recall, there was a piece of this, again, kind of highlight media that Dana put out about um, his experience during COVID. And 
bearing in mind any modicum of fact-checking to any of the things he did, uh, rendered his entire piece, like, just, it exposes the self-serving tripe that it was. What happened was, in the way, if you'll recall, I'll briefly do your history lesson here. As things started shutting down in March of 2020, due to the COVID pandemic, Dana White was desperately trying to find places to put on fights. As airports were shutting down, and travel was being restricted, and gatherings were being restricted, and he was going to go to an Indian reservation, and uh, one of the senators from California called, apparently, like, called for the people in Disney and said, you sure you want to do this? And the people at Disney called the people at Inde- who you know, told the people at UFC who then told Dana, knock it off. And when he was announcing, this is what we're doing. We're going to, you know, go to unregulated land. We're going to buy an island, all that crap. A lot of people in the media, somewhat myself included, I didn't talk a lot about this at the time, but somewhat myself included. I was not in the hit piece. I'm not big enough. They called Dana White out on his BS. And he took, and his little hit piece takes all a lot of quotes from that time period, wherein most of the criticism is, you're running away from safety regulations. What's the matter with you? And he reframes it out of context as though these people were when he was trying to do the shows in Florida when they when the Florida Commission sanctioned what was going on and it was him trying to stick it to the man because for some reason Dana White despite having succeeded largely at life still doesn't know some guys don't know how not to be the underdog right he's got to feel like he's fighting against something bigger than himself when he is the big thing that people fight against now. Anywho. And it's stupid. It's out of... Like, again, any fact-checking about the times and dates of certain bits of criticism versus when he frames them happening reveals how stupid this all is. He's trying to do another one of these for Power Slap because... The only reason it's failing is the media doesn't like Dana White. This is why his endeavor is failing in his mind. You know, the parallels between Dana White and Vince McMahon grow ever stronger. Ever, ever, ever stronger. Yeah. So... I bring that up because, again, Dana's going, well, this is the MMA media's fault. Sure it is. They just don't like me, and that's why they're saying all these negative things. It's not that your product is bad and boring, and that this is, frankly, unethical. There's ethics to fighting because there is defense. There's not ethics to let's stand across from each other and give each other brain trauma. For the amusement of barking seals. There, this is no way to regulate these things. Like, this is a line that should not be crossed. I don't... How far away are we from Dana White going, you know, maybe... Who wins a fight? This desperate man or this starving lion? And 
This guy would love to recreate the the worst aspect of the, like the gladiatorial era of the Roman Colosseum. He really would. But the closest he can get is no defense. We just hit each other in the head as hard as we can. We take turns hitting each other in the head. Ugh. And it's failing predictably, and he's lashing out because he doesn't like failing, and who does? But the notion that the media in general, the MMA media in particular, is somehow responsible for this is comical. It is at odds with reality in ways that should be self-evident. The MMA media is deferential to Dana White and the UFC power structure in ways that are laughable. Watch any other coverage of any other sport and see how the reporters deal with the athletes and management. I've said this before too, man. MMA fighters have, a lot of MMA fighters have very thin skin. You can't say anything even remotely negative about them or they take it personally. Think about all the criticism heaped on any NFL player or any NBA player. It is piled upon them. MMA fighters who are capable of truly spectacular things in the cage. I wonder how many of them would crumble under that pressure and how many of them would rise. I would actually like to know that. Don't think I ever will. But I, the way they react to very tepid criticism makes me wonder. All I'm saying. And the media, again, the, the MMA media tends to bend over backwards, might be slightly exaggerating the point, but they are deferential to the UFC. And yet all he can do is lash out at people rightly calling out this crap. Ugh. It's it's pathetic. It really is. It's petty, it's small, and it's pathetic. And it is utterly unbecoming the president of a billion-dollar sports enterprise to engage in this behavior, and yet he does. I'm aware that there's a degree of a slightly rebellious spirit to MMA in general and the UFC in particular that is somewhat of the charm. Even when they're not anymore, and they are not at all anymore, mind you, there's a degree to which that is part of the identity. However, there's some cues you really should be taking from people who have been here. You know, that you've heard that expression, right? Act like you've been here before. You're... This is kind of like the sports owning equivalent of like something I don't I'm not in tune with high society, but like picture one of those scenes when the new money comes into the country club and doesn't know how to behave. That's that's what we're doing here. And I don't mind a little bit of rebellious, a little bit of kind of counterculture. But you got to know which you've really got to know which things from the people who have been here doing this for a while are worth keeping and which are not. And the way in which they handle media matters might be something you could take some lessons from. 
All right. That is what I've got. Let me check Twitter, even though it's good grief. It's almost 1.30 in the morning for me. So, again, if I'm out of it, if I'm a little off, insomnia for the cause. All right. Let me check Twitter. If not, plugs, and I will get out of here, and I will wish you a good evening. All right. Nope. So, I mean, at this time of night, hopefully something crazy on Twitter doesn't break at 1.30 in the morning my time. Anywho, plugs. There's a Damn You Hollywood this week for Creed 3. I am not on it, but if you would like to stop by and listen to the review of that, I encourage you to do so. Should be a good time. My regular schedule of, of coverage, AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday, MLW if they're back on Thursday. If not, then whoever's got Underground on Tuesdays continues. I can't do it on Tuesdays. Um, WWE SmackDown on Friday. UFC event on Saturday. So that is the week as far as my plugs go. Then the week after is when we will get back. Is when I will be back on Damn You Hollywood. And we will be covering uh, Shazam. Oh, no, sorry. Creed 3 is this week. Scream 6 is next week. Shazam is the week after that. So Scream 6 next week. I will be on that one. That will be, again, that's not this coming Tuesday. That is, uh, Creed 3 is what? Mark and Jason, I think. Someone else might jump on that. Uh, Scream 6 is me, Mark, Alexis, Jason. No, Mark's on vacation. That's Alexis, me, and Jason. And an off chance someone else jumps on. So we'll wait and see. Maybe, maybe not, but. Scream 6, uh, that will be the 14th. So I will be back for that, and we will be back here next week when we will review UFC and ESPN plus 78, 9, 79, and preview UFC 286. Usman versus Edwards 3. Justin Gaethje and Rafael Fiziev are going to kill each other. Gunnar Nelson's back in action. Marvin Vittori fights Roman Delidze. That's actually a good fight. Um, Delidze has been making some pretty serious waves. He's six and one in the UFC. Yeah, on a four-fight winning streak, finished off both Phil Haas and Jack Hermanson. That Jack Hermanson win was pretty big. Um. That's a good fight. And, you know, Vittori needs a win. Coming off that, he got blanked by Robert Whitaker, more or less. But his only losses at middleweight in the in the UFC, he lost to Antonio Carlos Jr., then Israel Adesanya, then Adesanya again, and then Whitaker. So he's got a good track record. Uh, it's a good fight. Anyway, full preview next week. Come back for that. As... For the last time this evening, I'm going to thank you for listening. As always, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.